Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Summarily, a podcast for busy lawyers. This is episode 14, and I am your host, Robert Scavone Jr. My producer, Chris, said I need to bring some energy tonight, so I'm going to bring some energy. There weren't many groundbreaking decisions in Florida over the past couple weeks, but there were a handful of interesting opinions that I wanted to highlight for you. And Fancy Federal Land also produced a few appealing opinions. So I'm going to briefly recap those as well. Before we get to the opinions, let's hit the disclaimers. Number one, I am not your lawyer. Number two, if you have a legal issue, please call a lawyer. Number three, the following podcast is not legal advice. And number four, this is not an advertisement for legal services. I do not want your business. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The first opinion is Samsung versus Fields from the first DCA. And this opinion is about personal jurisdiction and exploding batteries. Fields was badly burned after his vape pen exploded and caught fire. Samsung, headquartered in South Korea, manufactured the vape pen batteries. Fields sued Samsung, and Samsung moved to dismiss for lack of personal jurisdiction. The trial court denied Samsung's motion, finding that Fields' claims satisfied Florida's long-arm statute and that Samsung had sufficient minimum contacts with the state. The trial court ruled that Samsung carried on business in Florida, committed a tort in Florida, and caused injury to Fields within the state. The first DCA reversed. The appellate court held that while Samsung did conduct business in Florida, Fields' injuries did not arise from that business. Why? According to the court, In order to show that the injuries arise from Samsung's business activities in Florida, there had to be a nexus or special connection between the cause of action and the defendant's activities in the state. Here, Fields failed to show that there was such a connection. The most substantial part of Samsung's business in Florida, according to the court, was in the sale of large batteries that were not used in vape pens. Additionally, The small vape pen batteries that Samsung did sell in Florida were sold to a company that manufactured e-powered bikes. Did Samsung commit a tort in Florida? Maybe, but Fields' cause of action was for strict liability, which is not covered by the long-arm statute. So strike two. What about the injury caused by Samsung's batteries? Fields, quote, failed to show that the batteries that exploded in his pocket were used in Florida in the ordinary course of commerce and trade. How so? First, Samsung prohibited its batteries from being used in vape pens and did not sell them for that purpose. And second, the sale of the batteries in question ended in March of 2017 but Fields' injuries occurred in October of 2018. Because these events did not occur at the same time, the long-arm statute did not provide a basis for specific personal jurisdiction. Strike three, and Fields is out. Next, can the successful party in a litigation get attorney's fees for litigating attorney's fees? It depends. And this next opinion provides a clear answer. 
The opinion is Nazarova versus Nafeld, and it's from the third DCA. The trial court awarded Nafeld attorney's fees, which included fees for litigating the amount of attorney's fees. The third DCA reversed that portion of the award. It explained that the general rule is that fees for fees are not recoverable. But, and there's always a but, fees for fees can be recovered if there is contract language broad enough to encompass fees for fees. Like a term that says fees are recoverable, quote, unquote, for any litigation. Or language that specifies that fees for litigating the amount of attorney's fees are recoverable. The contract in this case did not include such language. It allowed for fees in any lawsuit to quote unquote enforce the lease. That contract language was too narrow according to the court. Now we move to Jones versus Ervolino, another third DCA opinion. And this is a case about what trial courts must do when granting or denying summary judgment. This is a straightforward case. As most of you know, last year, Florida adopted the federal summary judgment standard. Under rule 1.510A, a trial court shall state on the record the reasons for granting or denying summary judgment. The trial court failed to do so in this case, and that failure compelled reversal. The third DCA stated that while the trial court need not write lengthy orders, it must take steps to ensure that the litigants and the appellate court understands why the trial court granted or denied the motion for summary judgment. The next opinion is a quick reminder about the legal standard for reviewing criminal convictions where the evidence is entirely circumstantial. Prior to the Florida Supreme Court's opinion in 2020 in Bush v. State, appellate courts considered whether the state's evidence rebutted the defendant's reasonable hypothesis of innocence. That standard changed with Bush. Now, quoting Bush, in all cases where the sufficiency of the evidence is analyzed the proper standard of review is whether the state presented competent, substantial evidence to support the verdict. This is also the standard trial courts must apply when ruling on motions for judgment of acquittal. This case, State v. Garcia, issued by the Florida Supreme Court, is an important reminder of that change. Here, the third DCA applied the wrong standard and reversed the convictions. The Florida Supreme Court in turn reversed and remanded with instructions for the third DCA to apply the correct standard. Next and finally from Florida, we have Shim v. Bouchel. This is a Florida Supreme Court case, and it resolved a conflict between the fifth and sixth DCAs. During proceedings supplementary, Bouchel discovered that Shim was hiding proceeds from a stock sale in a safe in his home in South Korea. Bouchel moved to compel Shim to turn the proceeds over to him and the other judgment creditors, arguing that the trial court could do so pursuant to in personam jurisdiction and under section 56.296. 
The trial court denied the motion, finding that it did not have jurisdiction over the foreign proceeds. The 5th DCA reversed and held that Section 56.29 sub 6 plainly authorized the trial court to act on the assets outside of its territorial jurisdiction, so long as the court had in personam jurisdiction over the debtor. This directly conflicted with a 4th DCA opinion, which held that the trial court lacks jurisdiction to compel the turnover of property outside of the state of Florida, notwithstanding its in personam jurisdiction over the judgment debtor. The Florida Supreme Court resolved the conflict in favor of the 5th DCA, holding that Section 56.29 sub 6 provides a trial court the authority to order a defendant over whom it has in personam jurisdiction to act on foreign property. Before we end, I want to briefly mention a few federal cases. On May 23rd, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit affirmed a preliminary injunction which found certain provisions of SP 7072 unconstitutional under the First Amendment. The law seeks to compel social media companies to keep certain posts on their platforms based on claims that the companies have a bias against conservative messages and those who advanced conservative ideas. The opinion is net choice v. Florida. A few weeks ago, the Fifth Circuit lifted an injunction on a similar Texas law without an opinion. This is certainly headed for the Super Supremes, and we are going to dedicate an episode to this opinion in the coming weeks, so stay tuned. In another case from the 11th Circuit, U.S. v. Jimenez, in another case from the 11th Circuit, U.S. v. Jimenez Shilon, the court held that the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms does not extend to illegal aliens. Why? According to the court, the Second Amendment codified a pre-existing right to keep and bear arms. And prior to the adoption of the Constitution, English and colonial law prohibited non-citizens from possessing firearms. Quoting the court, Aliens could not surreptitiously enter a foreign nation in violation of immigration prerogatives of the sovereign and expect to receive all the rights and protections of the citizenry. Nor can they do so today. Finally, we have Shin v. Martinez Ramirez. In this opinion, the Super Supremes limited what federal district courts can do in habeas cases brought by state prisoners. In some federal district courts cannot conduct evidentiary hearings under Section 2254 to consider evidence outside of the state court record. In this case, the prisoners argued that trial counsel was constitutionally ineffective and that the reason they did not raise the ineffective claim in the state court post-conviction proceedings was because their post-conviction counsel was also ineffective. According to the prisoners, the first time they were able to raise trial counsel's ineffectiveness was in the federal habeas proceedings. 
they wanted to and did supplement the state court records in federal district court. The Supremes, in a 6-3 opinion, held that Congress crafted 2254 to allow only very narrow review of state court convictions and that federal district courts err in entertaining evidence that was not before the state courts. Alrighty then, that's a wrap. I have a great lineup of guests scheduled for the next month or so, so make sure you subscribe and hit the notification button so you don't miss out. As always, this podcast was produced by my friend Chris Clark of Pendulum Productions, and you can find him and his work at vimeo.com backslash Pendulum Productions LLC. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. And remember, folks, case law is one word. Thank you.